morning and welcome to Rising. It's a gray day for me and Brianna, <laughs> but we have some very exciting breaking news to get to. Obviously, important uh, political and legal developments last night. Uh, let's get right into it. Go ahead, Brianna. Well, Robbie, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled last night that former President Trump is ineligible to appear on the state's 2024 presidential ballot. The ruling is based on language in the 14th Amendment banning individuals from taking oaths of office if they participated in a, quote, insurrection. Justices for the court wrote in a unanimous majority opinion that President Trump's direct and express efforts over several months exhorting his superiors to march to the Capitol to prevent what he falsely characterized as an alleged fraud on the people of this country were indisputably overt and voluntary. For a little context, all seven justices on Colorado Supreme Court were appointed by Democratic governors, and six of the seven were confirmed to office by voters in subsequent elections. Of course, it's also true of the lower court, which uh, was divided in its opinion. The former president responded to the court's decision in a statement made by his campaign. Unsurprisingly, the all-Democrat appointed Colorado Supreme Court has ruled against President Trump supporting a Soros-funded left-wing group scheme to interfere in an election on behalf of crooked Joe Biden by removing President Trump's name from the ballot and eliminating the rights of Colorado voters to vote for the candidate of their choice. Now, Trump is already receiving support from some of his 2024 competition on the matter. Here's Vivek Ramaswamy just last night. They have just tried to bar President Trump from the Colorado ballot using an unconstitutional maneuver that is a bastardization of the 14th Amendment to our U.S. Constitution. This was a provision, Section 3, that was designed to bar Confederate members, people who switched to the Confederacy, from actually being able to serve. That's very different than what's at issue here, to say the least. This is a hollowed out husk of what the country was built on. The basic principle that we the people select our leadership, not the unelected elite class in the back of palace halls. That's old world Europe, not the United States. That's why I'm making a pledge today that I will withdraw, I pledge to withdraw from the Colorado GOP primary ballot unless and until tr Trump's name is restored. And it appears if the court's decision is upheld, Vivek won't be alone. An account for the Colorado Republican Party tweeted last night, we will withdraw from the primary as a party and convert to a pure caucus system if this is allowed to stand. Friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald, weighed in as well, saying, quote, as Biden collapses in the polls and Trump rises, Democrats are going to resort to increasingly desperate and anti-democratic means to ensure Trump can't run, all while they insist that only they are the guardians of democracy. This is playing with real fire. And uh, I'm going to be doing a radar next on the specifically anti-democratic nature of this. Um, so we'll talk about that more uh, in greater detail in a minute. But um, I wonder, you know, what are your top-line thoughts on this development? Yeah, I think politically the optics are tough for Democrats. This is not a state that Trump needed to win anyway, so it's kind of a, a fear a victory here. Um, and you can see already Vivek Ramaswamy um, posturing off of this, using it for political gamesmanship. He wasn't going to win Colorado either, right. but now he can have this moment of solidarity with Donald Trump and kind of brandish the brand. Um, but that's, I think, a separate question from the legal merits of the thing. Uh, so there's this political question doctrine, right, which is a part of the legal analysis here. And it says that there are some questions that shouldn't be decided by unelected judges, that these kind of expressly political questions, like who's going to be the president of the United States, potentially, should be decided by the people of the country and not in the courts. 
I do think it's complicated in this instance because we do have a constitutional amendment which specifically speaks to the question of whether or not someone who has committed certain acts should be president. So in the same way that you wouldn't say it's a political question for a court to say, hey, you're not 35, you can't run for president, or hey, you're not, you weren't born in the United States of America, you can't be president, clearly this was one of those issues that the Constitution explicitly contemplates being handled by courts as opposed to elected officials. My hang-up here is the what feels like a premature decision to say that Trump did, in fact, participate in an insurrection, when this is exactly the issue that's being worked out in court right now. And now this Colorado court that does not have the ability to actually put on a trial and adduce the facts is making what seems like a premature decision on the factual basis. Now, if there were already a court decision elsewhere that he had been convicted of participating in an insurrection, I think they'd be on much stronger ground here. Right. Uh, he's not been convicted yet of anything of the sort. Um, he was impeached, but not actually removed from office on that basis. Um, there are so the, the questions, looking you know strictly at the, the legal aspect of it, there are questions about whether this um, should apply to the office of the presidency. That was what the, the so the lower court ruling that this overturned said that well yes Donald Trump did commit an insurrection, but the section three of the Fourteenth Amendment, which is the provision we're talking about here, doesn't apply to the president. The president's oath of office is worded slightly differently than what it, it prohibits in the in section three. I think it was I think in section three it, it says anyone who violated their oath to support the Constitution, and the president's oath is actually to defend the Constitution, which maybe sounds like a subtle difference, but um, but is part of the argument that this was not this was not meant to apply to to that to that branch. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, it's the case that when they when they wrote section uh, uh, three, when this, this became part of the Constitution, they intended it to apply to Confederates. Confederate leaders who had actually, um, who had held office, right, who had previously held office, not just any Confederate soldier, but someone who had previously held office and then had served in the Confederacy, you know, who had literally taken up arms against the United States. You know, you can characterize—when people characterize what happened on January 6th as an insurrection, I, I know some people mean that quite literally. A lot of people are using that in a more kind of catch-all term for what happened. You can think what Donald Trump did was very wrong, very bad. You know, it's being worked out in the courts now whether it it um, it, it constitutes criminal acts. But it's not—he he did not in the same sense that, you know, he didn't occupy the building with an attempt to form a breakaway republic or something the way the Confederacy did. No, no, I don't have as much of a problem with that. I think that the nature of an insurrection is trying to take control of a country undemocratically. And we'll see what the courts hold, but the facts that have been laid out in the 1-6 indictments involve him doing exactly that. It's not that he inspired or incited a riot on January 6th. That's not the charge. The charge is that he participated in a weeks-long fraud to submit a fake slate of electors to Congress that would enable him to overturn the democratic will of American citizens in seven states in particular. So, to me, that is— similar to any other kind of coup, what it's political coup versus a militaristic coup, I think that that is rightly deemed an insurrection. I mean, the fundamental problem here is overturning the democratic will of the country and trying to take over the leadership of the country through means other than the legal democratic means. I, I find myself in a curious position because I disagree with the outcome, but also disagree with the, the rationale that the court has chosen at every juncture. So the lower court, I don't understand why they would choose to make it an issue of whether or not um, 
the, the president qualify, you know, the president is contemplated by this. It seems quite obvious to me that if you wanted to have a law that prevented Confederate soldiers from attaining high office, when they obviously have shown disloyalties to the country, you would want that to be true of the highest office in the land, just as you would every other um, inferior office in the land. Um, I don't understand the rationale of saying we're going to, without the benefit of an actual trial and uh, adjudication of the facts, come to a determination that there has, in fact, been an insurrection, but not be looking at some of these other reasons as to why this case shouldn't go forward. I do think that Republicans are also going to have to look themselves long and hard in the mirror, though, because as much as there are these protestations around this political question aspect of it, for the reasons I stated before, I think that's not as big of an issue, but also because they have the precedent of Bush v. Gore. And they're going to have to contend with arguments that the Supreme Court already has a precedent of stepping in in a much clearer case when it was not a constitutionally contemplated political, uh, you know, exception to this political question doctrine, and decided the outcome of election in 2000. And so I do think a lot of the protestations here, whatever you think about them, are going to be read as largely hypocritical by at least half the country. Because of Bush v. Gore? Yeah. Well, but here it will be the Supreme Court saying, assuming, and I, I think there's good reason to assume that if they weigh in, they'll restore Trump to the ballot, saying that the people get to vote and that it gets to be decided. Right. I, I don't so understand I don't the understand question. What you're it's, it's, You're saying, it's, it's a that's more, it's to a Bush more, di it was a more dire interference in Bush v. Gore because it actually decided the election result. Here, right. regardless, frankly, it's not going to decide the election re result. Trump didn't win in Colorado. It's it's a moot point. But to sit here and make the argument that this is a political question, that the liberals are interfering in an inappropriate way, that this should be decided by the people of a state, when that was not the argument that was being made back in 2000, I think it's difficult for Republicans. And Republicans historically get away with these sorts of things. Right now, there's an, an ongoing um, uh, investigation and a lot of controversy around um, uh, evidence that uh, Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court openly was agitating for higher pay, saying if he doesn't pay enough, if he doesn't earn more money, he's going to quit the Supreme Court. And there's now a story, we haven't covered it yet on this show, uh, but that he, after making those kind of protestations, was re recipient of a large number of donations from exactly the kind of people who are, f are formally in front of the court with on a regular basis in a way that really presents a true conflict of interest in undermining the integrity of the Supreme Court altogether. But despite all of these scandals happening, he's been in a number of these scandals for well over a year now. It doesn't seem to have any political consequences. And I do think that there is a world in which Republicans don't seem to have to face the political consequences of a lot of the actions of their actors. Democrats tend to get shamed out of pursuing, I think, anti-democratic uh, avenues like this. So it'll be interesting to see if Democrats back down to the public pressure here, or if they say, hey, it's our turn at bat. We live in an undemocratic country. Let's push forward. Democrats similarly have a hypocritical I issue, I would say. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Just one other thing is that Democrats have to deal with the hypocrisy of doing the exact same thing to Marion Williamson and Dean Phillips in Florida, stripping them summarily off the ballot without even the hook of a constitutional provision like the one we're looking at here in the 14th Amendment. And they're going to have to explain that to the public. And Democrats have—they are pursuing criminal charges against Trump in four different jurisdictions. They have now found— a, a literal, what I would call a technicality, legal argument to possibly keep him off the ballot. I mean, I think we have evidence they're resorting. I mean, you can you can think these things are merited and turnabout is fair play, and you have to do whatever you can to get your um, your team over the finish line. But I would say they are absolutely resorting to anti-democratic means, which I'm going to talk about more in a minute. I don't know that I understand the Bush v. Gore. I mean, Bush v. Gore. I mean, the, that was a 
that was a very unique and difficult legal situation because Florida essentially held, I mean, not all of Florida, but the one county that printed those ridiculous ballots essentially held an illegitimate election because they printed the ballots wrong and caused people to vote for the wrong person. And I don't know what should have been done in that situation. Yeah, I well, if I, re if I recall correctly, there was this question of whether or not they should throw the, the decision back down uh, to the states. There was some technicality that said the state's deadline for assessing these kinds of issues had passed, and therefore it technically couldn't do so. So there was a lot going on there where there was a choice some would say a rationalization to allow the Supreme Court, with the composition that it had, to make a decision that was obviously going to be advantageous to the person who did not win as many votes in the state of Florida, um, the governor of a state that obviously also happened to be related to the presidential candidate in that case. So I think that it, there's direct parallels, and you're going to see a lot of people making these parallels throughout. The question is whether or not those are convincing to the Democratic electorate, who I think really feels justified in turnabout as fair play, or to really the independence that you're going to need to feel um, comfortable with the Democratic Party's—this is the perception that this is the Democratic Party's choices here in at least relishing this, even if they're not the ones directly behind this lawsuit. Um, one other thing I want to comment on very quickly before we go, uh, Vivek's decision, obviously, to take his name off um, the ballot is this kind of— Solidarity, which I understand, um, but it reminds me of um, like Ann Coulter's joke about how uh, she, she was commenting on Charlie Kirk saying after they, I think after they did the Mar-a-Lago raid, Charlie Kirk said, well, all Republicans should drop out in solidarity with Donald Trump. And she said, that's not enough. I'm calling on them all to commit suicide in solidarity with Donald Trump. <laughs> the point being like, how does this, how does this stop the Democrats or stop Joe Biden to have everyone like decide not to like that that's not that's not punishing the right people it right, makes well, very little sense I mean this me, is uh, look, I mean this doesn't matter this, this it, is the Colorado it, it, uh, primary but but if this logic the, the, if this logic is applied more broadly, this is what's going like, yes, just keeping him off the primary ballot in Colorado doesn't matter. Even if he was not on the general election ballot in Colorado, it probably wouldn't matter either, although that's still crazy. But if this logic is adopted elsewhere, unless the Supreme Court says it shouldn't be, then that's keeping him off the sure. ballot. And, and we would need some Republican on the ballot. They're all going to decide, well, I'm not going to run either. Well, no one's going to agree job. to this except for Vivek Ramaswamy, which is what this is all about. This is about Vivek Ramaswamy making a hit on the other Republicans in the race. This isn't about Donald Trump at all. It's about him showing he's the most loyal one of the group, which is, I think, the problem that all of the primary candidates have been dealing with. At what point are you going to be willing to distinguish yourself against Donald Trump, especially since a majority of Republicans actually aren't wild about him facing four indictments? That's one of his genuine vulnerabilities genuinely vulnerable spots, with most Republicans saying that he is, in fact, indicted. Now, these are polls, and who knows if people are being honest in these poll results. But if he is, in fact, indicted, that they don't want to vote for him either. If, if voters are feeling that way, but the candidates aren't willing to articulate, even in this moment, that, hey, if he did do the thing and is convicted of the thing, then I would agree that that is bad and you should vote for me, then what are they even arguing in the first place? Yeah. Why are they running? I'm just saying, before Vivek, like, if Trump gets convicted, before Vivek, like, marches in solidarity off to the jail cell as well, I want to have an intervention with him. Uh, we will uh, keep talking about this uh, coming up next. Uh, we've also got a great interview with Gabriel Shipton, brother of Julian Assange. Fantastic show today. Stay tuned. Jeffrey Epstein's black book finally being revealed? Well, a New York judge has ordered a mass unsealing of court documents relating to disgraced sex offender and financier Jeffrey Epstein. 
that will likely make public the names of vast swaths of Epstein's associates, according to ABC News. Now, the documents set to be released are part of a settled civil lawsuit alleging Epstein's one-time paramour, Ghislaine Maxwell, facilitated the sexual abuse of Virginia Giuffre. Per reports, anyone who did not successfully fight to keep their name out of the civil case could see their name become public, including more than 150 people, which include Epstein's victims, co-conspirators, and other associates. Judge Loretta Presca set the release for January 1st, giving anyone who objects to their documents becoming public some time to object. On a related note, a motion in Congress to reveal the contents of Epstein's flight logs has seemingly stalled, a situation Congressman Tim Burchett says is due to representatives being blackmailed. Here he is on Newsmax. And too many of my colleagues, I'm afraid, are compromised uh, in this area for whatever reason. Somebody just whispered in their ear, said, hey, you don't want something to come out on something else. You better keep your mouth shut on this. And that's exactly what they've done. And, um, and it continues to go, whether it's the honeypot that the Russians used to use or something worse. I don't know. But, but it's clearly, you see that up and down the line. You see good conservatives vote for liberal policies. And I mean, as with everything else, those are some tall accusations. Which of your colleagues have been, have been uh, told not to speak up on Jeffrey Epstein-related matters because someone's whispering in, their, who's you, whispering in their ear? When you say, Talk. along with everything else, are you alluding to uh, the UFO stories, yes. at, at which he's also a center? Yes. I mean, I like Tim Burchett, and I'm glad he is <laughs> fighting for accountability on these issues. Um, but, it's just sometimes we use the royal insinuation, day. But insinuation, insinuation, doesn't get you very far. So, like, in, so in this case, so... This is good that it's it's happening. People have a lot of questions about the Epstein um, files and why uh, we don't know more about who was involved. Um, they will be redacting, keeping out some of the names for good reason. So victims of Jeffrey Epstein who have not publicly come forward or who were underage, I think there is healthy reason not to um, publicize their names, particularly if they object to it. Um, possibly even if they don't say anything at all, um, and they were underage at the time, they're victims of sex crimes. It's, it's general practice not to release information on those people. The media doesn't provide names of those people, even if it, even if it is known, even if you have a police report that names the person, you're not in, in the media, you don't, if they're under 18 or 16, you know, it, it, that's just, that's not illegal, that's just common journalistic standard practice. So I can see the argument for it. Um, I, th I think what we're going to get is the names of you know, people, we're going to get names of people who provided testimony or who were involved in the proceedings, who are maybe witnesses or associates, which doesn't necessarily mean that they had anything to do with underlying criminal behavior or wrongdoing. Um, I, you know, what a lot of people uh, who, who have—who are passionate about the Jeffrey Epstein story and, and I mean, understand—correctly outraged about the, the wild, far-reaching abuse of underage women for decades that went on under his uh, abusive behavior and his ability to remain in polite society for a long time, to hobnob with wealthy political people on both sides of the political spectrum, with um, with moneyed elites. Um, the, the implication of the suggestion is always that there's that black book. There are other rich and powerful famous people who, who took advantages of the services that Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein were providing. Obviously, there was the accusation against um, a member of the royal family, Prince Andrew. Um, the, the insinuation is that there's more. There are more people like that who have not yet been named, and are we going to find out information on them? And then the implication of that is always, well, if the government has, these, has this document, 
knows who else was involved. Why weren't more charges brought against more people? So there's a there's a and then and that's when the like well is it because that would be too politically inconvenient to prosecute these people? Or they have dirt on the prosecutors that we would indict. It would you know bring down the whole global system to have this many people facing charges for sex crimes. That's where people's head goes when they're denied that information. Yeah. So according to CNN, the order says Epstein's associates, one of whom played a role in a sex trafficking crimes and another whose name came up in a criminal trial, will also have their documents unsealed in full. So there will at least be some people who aren't just accused of having associations with Epstein, but were specifically alleged to have been in a conspiracy uh, along with Epstein to commit these kinds of sex crimes. But I do think that you're right when there's an allusion to the Black Book and the Black Book being unsealed, the implication is that we're going to get a list of people who also exploited young girls, not just people, I don't mean to minimize it, but not just people who had social associations with Jeffrey Epstein. So, um, you know, New York Magazine put out an article in anticipation of this news coming out, making a list of people who were revealed as Epstein associates during the last trove of, of, of the last unsealing um, moment. And, you know, there are people who have had social relationships with him. We've been talking about RFK Jr., who was recently questioned about flying on Epstein's plane, um, which he acknowledged and admitted to having done on a couple of occasions. There's people like Vera Wang and Naomi Campbell, who are believed to have been used by Jeffrey Epstein as inducements to get young girls who are interested in entering modeling or the fashion industry to come in closer association with him, dangling his high-profile celebrity friends. Um, there's people like the former um, prime minister of Israel. There's people like Bill Gates, who obviously has been a big part of this conversation. William Burns, CIA director. Um, Noam Chomsky, who was also in the news uh, this year. Uh, about his associations with Epstein and his kind of odd reaction to that information becoming public, and on and on and on. So this feels like it could be momentous, depending on who is, in fact, named. But also, I think the more important aspect of it is what is actually being alleged about the nature of their relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Were they social friends, which might bring a certain level of condemnation and judgment, or were they people who are alleged to have been a part of the conspiracy or to have also exploited young women? And also, at what point were they social friends? That's, a, that's what matters substantially for me, because this was a you know, wealthy, well-connected person who was going to a lot of social events. Like, you, you know, if you met him at a party in the 90s, that is, frankly, very different than after he was prosecuted for sex crimes against children, convicted, put under house arrest, and then later, your, your, your you know, you, there's emails, or your, your yeah. secretary has emails with him where you're so happy to be able to see him at his island next summer, like in you know in, in the in the in the late aughts or the 20 teens. That is that is disgusting. well, right. Well, so all of these people that I just named, that's from the trove of documents that was taken from thousands of emails and private schedules dating from 2013 to 2017. Yeah, so off, after incredible. the initial conviction. So for example, um, Naomi Campbell gave a statement saying that she deeply regrets having had any contact with Epstein after his conviction. These are people who you can make the strong case that they should have known better. Um, so we'll see if there's anything substantial that comes out of this, but it does seem that at least one person who, mm. um, 
was implicated criminally in these cases is going to be revealed. I also wonder if we'll learn anything more about the Virgin Islands situation. Um, we, we followed how uh, Delegate Stacey Plaskett has a history of, of associations, inviting him specifically, or her team inviting him specifically to a fundraiser, uh, him lobbying the government of the Virgin Islands to change its, like, sex offender <laughs> registry policies solely for his own benefit, um, him really being able to use that jurisdiction as his personal um, fiefdom in a, in a nakedly, wildly corrupt way. So I wonder if we'll get any more information on people associated with the Virgin Islands. Yeah. All right, stick around. We'll have a rising feed right after this. Well, Brianna, former President Donald Trump is ineligible to run in the Republican presidential primary and ultimately to run for president, according to yesterday's incendiary decision by the Colorado Supreme Court. Now, there are many reactions one could have to this surprising, divisive 4-3 to three decision, which will be appealed to and ultimately decided by the nine justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. But one thing is abundantly clear. The anti-democratic agenda of supposedly pro-democracy political figures has been nakedly exposed for once and for all. Now, recall that for months, four years, really, for as long as Donald Trump has been a serious political figure on the national scene, we have heard warnings from Democratic officials, from the mainstream media, political scientists, historians, everyone else who forms the expert class, that Trump represents an existential threat to democracy. According to them, this was true before Trump became president, it was true while he was president, and it was especially true after he exited the presidency in a fit of inchoate rage. The unique danger posed by a second Trump term in office, were Trump to return to the White House in 2024, meant that the rules were going out the window. His opponents are determined to stop him at almost any cost. Indeed, Trump is facing numerous criminal indictments at the state and federal level connected to his fruitless and ultimately counterproductive efforts to remain in power after the 2020 loss. But yesterday, the anti-Trump legal movement pulled off the first step of a coup to bar Trump from seeking the presidency again at all. Let me say that again, a coup, that's what it is. Let's be clear, it's a coup resulting from a decision by a progressive legal group, Citizens for Ethics and Responsibility in Washington, to use entirely unprecedented means to keep Trump's name off the ballot next November. Crew and various legal scholars of both a liberal and also a never-Trump Republican variety have tried to argue that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution prohibits insurrectionists from holding office, and that this provision applies to Donald Trump due to his actions on and before January 6, 2021. Now, it's universally accepted that Section 3 was intended to apply to former Confederates who had betrayed their oaths to support the Constitution by taking up arms against the United States. Whatever one thinks of Donald Trump and his foolish antics on and before January 6, the president's oath is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Moreover, Trump has never been convicted of inciting an insurrection, but according to Colorado justices, who, by the way, were all elected by Democratic governors, it's up to the candidates to prove his innocence, and thus his eligibility, in the same way that candidates for president have to prove that they were born in the U.S. and have reached 35 years of age. Now, I won't pretend that this legal case is crystal clear. We are obviously treading in some very murky waters. A lower court's judge, for example, ruled that Trump did in fact engage in insurrection, but that Section 3 did not apply to the office of the presidency. 
But look, there's a broader point here, and it has nothing to do with whether there's some technicality upon which a partisan and weaponized justice system could conceivably rest its singularly focused prosecution of Donald Trump. You are free to think Trump is unfit for office, and you are free to think the legal system should hold him accountable. But you cannot wrap yourself in the cloak of democracy when you resort to anti-democratic means to stop him. Democratic Representative Adam Schiff is celebrating the ruling, saying that it's accountability for Trump's past actions. That's dead wrong, Congressman. Accountability would be the voters rejecting Trump due to his actions. If you take away this choice, you've only proved you don't actually believe in the principles you've sworn that Trump has violated. Let's make no mistake, refusing to print Donald Trump's name on the ballot would be deeply, profoundly undemocratic. Trump is not a gadfly candidate. He is the current frontrunner. He is at this moment leading incumbent President Joe Biden in swing state polling. If the election were held today, he might very likely win. Are his opponents saying, we can't beat Trump, so it's okay to cheat? What does that do to their argument that it's Trump who won't play by the rules of democracy when they have gone to the court to beg the justice system to take this choice off the table for the American voters? Who, I suppose, are too stupid to decide for themselves? And Trump is a threat to democracy? I can't put it any better than libertarian former Congressman Justin Amash, who writes, quote, the opinion of the Colorado Supreme Court is shameful and runs completely counter to our constitutional system. Donald Trump was not removed from office by Congress for engaging in insurrection. Donald Trump has not been criminally convicted in a court of law of engaging in insurrection. Whatever you believe about whether Donald Trump engaged in insurrection has no bearing on whether he's eligible to run for president. No legislative, executive, or judicial body of a state should engage in extra-constitutional decision-making to disqualify a federal candidate from the ballot. This is an accountability. It's an assault on due process of law. It undermines our electoral system and threatens every federal candidate for office." End quote. Now, for what it's worth, this effort may ultimately help Trump. That's because there's practically no way on earth that the Supreme Court will co-sign Colorado's recklessness. If they did, it would tear the country apart. It would tell millions of the people that they were not allowed to cast their ballots for their preferred candidate. This would erode faith in our institutions to an absolute breaking point. It would embolden anti-democratic forces, as it would expose our democratic system as fraudulent. Political figures who swear that Trump is a depraved maniac are demonstrating they need to look in the mirror. I am reminded, actually, of the pivotal scene in the Star Wars prequel movies, where the hypocrisy and hollowness of the Jedi commitment to democracy is exposed for Anakin Skywalker to see, resulting in his transformation into the sinister Darth Vader. If our elected leaders, our keepers of the peace, our protectors of the law, if they don't trust democracy to prevail over evil in the long run, if they must corrode and corrupt democracy because one outcome or another is too dangerous to be permitted, then they are the ones who have betrayed their oaths to the Constitution. All right. So, as I said in our A Block segment, I think it is wrong to decide without a trial court, without a, a fact-based finding that Donald Trump has, in fact, committed an insurrection. To me, that's the flaw in all of this. I also agree that, completely outside of the law, the optics of this are bad from a Democratic perspective, just as they are bad when the Democratic Party keeps every candidate not named Joe Biden off the ballot in Florida. However, the idea that this is pure legal fiat, I think, goes too far. Much like 
deciding whether or not someone is 35 and therefore ineligible to be president, or much like deciding that they were not born in the United States of America and therefore are ineligible to be president. The 14th Amendment is clear on this prohibition of someone having committed an insurrection not being allowed to be president of the United States of America. That is a toggle, yes, no, on, off, switch. The Constitution is clear about this prohibition. I don't think, if we can take a step back from Donald Trump for a second, that anyone thinks the idea of that prohibition is a problem. Many conservatives in this moment are pointing to the fact that this is a law that was contemplated in the wake of the Civil War. That is true. But like most laws that are provoked by some real-world occurrence, they are not designed to be limited to apply to exactly that literal occurrence. They would not have promulgated the law if they thought that the law only applied to Civil War, right? There's no point. The Civil War already happened. So there, I, I, I find myself reflecting on the two conservative Federalist um, Federalist Society lawyers who have written a law review paper on this question, and there was a um, article write-up on it in the New York Times that came out over the summer. And they came to this, they say, as originalists, this is not a constitutional law re review strategy that I agree with, but they are originalists, they are conservatives, they are fed Federalist Society people, who so they came to this question genuinely wanting to know the legal answer. And their assessment was that there are legal grounds for this. They say, they, they take for granted that he committed an insurrection. That part of their analysis I would quibble with. But they say um, that the, the provision in, in the 14th Amendment was written in a way that is broad. They looked at the uh, historical context in which it was written and say that, that it, of course, contemplates a former president making the choice to try to undermine the political will of voters to remain in the presidency, that there's not a lot of controversy around whether that is something that is a insurrection or a coup or whatever the full language of the 14th Amendment is. Oh, here it is. Um, it, it bars those who have taken an oath, quote, to support the Constitution of the United States from holding office if they then shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies, the enemies thereof. So I do think that there is a bit of a conflation here that's happening. Is there a political problem here? Is this a, an optics problem here? Did Donald Trump, through his behavior, get us into a place where he has violated the law in such a way that might preclude him from legally being able to be president? Yes. But the accountability here should be at least as much on Donald Trump and him putting him and his party and his supporters in this position as it is on a provision of the Constitution that is what it is, that, in fact, is there to safeguard the American public from having people that would not respect the outcome of election results be in a position to, frankly, do that again. I mean, but the ultimate safeguard has to be the people rejecting that person of their own free will. And look, I, I, I hear you, and I'm not—and I hope I made clear in what I said—I am not— saying there's absolutely no legal case for doing this. There clearly is. P smart people have articulated one. I understand the argument. I, I would quibble with whether I, Trump's actions are bad. I, again, I've said I supported him being impeached and removed from office over them. I think whether his actions to remain in power constitute an insurrection or rebellion that, to my mind, summons um, deliberately violent means or the taking up of arms, which is, was not part of 
the Trump scheme that we both consider to be the more compelling stuff that he did. Um, I, I would quibble with that because I think they were specifically, they were in fact specifically talking about Confederate um, officer, you know, people who had taken up arms. There's the question of whether, given the way Section 3 is, is worded, did they mean to apply it to the presidency? Because, you know, if a state, if a state disqualifies a state official, you know, federalism, I mean, there's more, you know, under, that's more understandable and permissible, whereas this is essentially a state disqualifying this person, like, for the entire nation, mm -hmm. which is also a different thing and why the presidency might be accepted. So anyway, there, there are so many—it's debatable. It's clearly debatable. Given that it is not 100 percent airtight, I think you have to leave the choice to the, to the people. Look, this, is, this is all I'd say. Which I, I know we're not—we're just yeah, having a discussion this, this is all it. I say is that I could also say, well, let's let the people decide if someone's 35. Clearly, um, uh, Olivia Rodrigo is not old enough to be president. <laughs> But Americans know that, and they're smart enough to just choose not to vote for Olivia Rodrigo. None of us would, none of us would allow that. We could say, oh, it's clear that, sorry, Cenk, but Cenk Uger is not eligible to be president because <laughs> he wasn't born in the United States. Maybe we should get rid of that law, but today he's not eligible to be president. So let's just trust the process, and people can, he can be on the ballot, and we'll just trust Americans not to vote for him despite him not being eligible because he wasn't born in this country. But that's not mm -hmm. the logic we would apply in those scenarios, and everybody listening to this knows that. So this cannot be—I I understand emotionally the political implications of this and the optics of it, and I don't—I agree that they're not good. But we would not be making the argument that it's anti-democratic not to just elect— let Olivia Rodrigo shoot right. her shot right. if the law on the Although books Although Dick Uger so did, come on the, did come on the show and <laughs> argue that it was anti-democratic <laughs> well, yes. not to let him run for president. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll be continuing to discuss this uh, many times over as we wait for the Supreme Court to possibly take up this yeah. case and give us clearer guidance. More rising right after this. Activists protesting in favor of a ceasefire in Gaza took to the U.S. Capitol Rotunda yesterday, where they demonstrated against Israel's ongoing military operations there. Police confirmed dozens of protesters were arrested after they refused to leave. Yesterday overseas, Al Jazeera cameras caught the harrowing moment that an airstrike landed near a Kuwaiti hospital in southern Gaza. Let's watch. As we're, we're getting into... Oh my God, did you hear that? Yes, yes, Oh my God. That's the hospital, that's the hospital. That's the hospital. Oh my God. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry, almost 20,000 Palestinian civilians have now been killed by Israeli military operations since October 7th. Meanwhile, this week, Democratic Senator John Fetterman took a page from Nikki Haley's playbook and blamed TikTok for young people's lack of support for Israel. Here he is on CNN. 72% of young voters, according to this new poll, disapprove of how President Biden is handling the Israel-Hamas war. You've been very vocal in your full support for Israel. I see the Israeli flag behind you in your office there. You've been very clearly arguing that Hamas bears responsibility for the tragedy of what's going on in Gaza. Why do you think so many younger people, especially in your party, see it differently? 
I, I really, I really don't, I really don't know. Uh, I, I do know that a lot of people are getting their perspective from TikTok. And I think if you're kind of getting your perspective on the world on TikTok, it's going to tend to be kind of warped or not reflective of the, the history and, and actually the way things absolutely are. And what is very clear is, is that Hamas started this and they actually broke the, the ceasefire and they attacked uh, and murdered uh, babies, children, women, uh, attacked a, a music uh, a concert and everything. It's, it's, it's outrageous. So the specific accusation against TikTok that some people, including some people on the right, have alleged is it's being, the algorithm is being manipulated by the Chinese government to favor uh, uh, pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli narratives. I guess Fetterman doesn't quite say that he buys into that there. He says that, and I, I think this is frankly true, young people are much more anti Israel, as far as I can tell, it's a genuine sentiment. It's not being manipulated to achieve. Um, that's just the politics of the youngest generation, and TikTok is a preferred news source, communications source for many of them. Um, you know, I've said I, I wouldn't put it past the Chinese government to manipulate the algorithm in some way, given that our own government has tried to assert control of the narrative on all the social media companies under its purview. Wouldn't surprise me if the Chinese did the same. But, you know, I think it's um, not helpful to blame the tool, to blame a, a platform for the views of, of people. That's just like, I mean, that, on some levels, that's going back to 2016-style Hillary Clinton-esque, I would have won if not for those confused people on Facebook. Oh, no. Like, sorry, you got to make your case. Yeah, it is kind of surreal. To hear Federman say that back to back to the video we just watched of the bombing um, that happened live on air uh, that the journalist was covering in Gaza, and in the wake of reporting of 20,000 innocents now killed in Gaza. I mean, it's a population of 2.3 million people. You're in a situation where entire families are being wiped out. Everybody knows people who have experienced loss, not to mention that there are over 50,000 people who have been injured. And we're seeing them being treated in the most brutal of circumstances with the medical blockade uh, proceeding. There's been reporting of obstruction of the limited aid that is being brought into Gaza being obstructed from getting to its the, the, the needed recipients. You see children and adults alike being subject to amputations without any anesthesia. Um, there is a food and water crisis. Starvation uh, is the next tool of destruction in the region. You're seeing all of this play out on every social media platform, even the mainstream media occasionally. And to make the assessment that the reason people are bristling at this com conflict and calling for a, a ceasefire and saying that Israel is acting in excess, regardless of how passionately and compassionately you feel for the lives lost on October 7th, to attribute that to Chinese interference when the Occam's razor of it all is that people don't like to see dead, bloody, beheaded, disemboweled children on their timeline, I think is painfully out of touch. Sure. I, I think the unprecedented um, level of public that we're, we're able to witness what's going on in this conflict in almost real time, being flooded with images of people, innocent people dying, um, being blown apart, um, certainly is part of that um, sentiment. I mean, I, I think it's horrible to watch, and I wish very much that an end f to the violence could be 
could, could be agreed to as soon as possible. I, I, you know, I don't enjoy watching it. The other frustrating aspect of this most recent Fetterman statement, it's similar to what we were talking about earlier in the week, where he seems to have taken one position at one time when it was convenient, and now he's flip-flopping. So it used to be he's all about the kids, listen to the kids, the kids are right, and now we're in the realm of this Bart Simpson meme where, you know, it's the Principal Skinner asking, uh, is it me? Am I the problem? No, it's the kids who are wrong. So when he was surging in his congressional campaign and was going viral semi-regularly with dunks on Dr. Oz talking about he's not pronouncing Wegmans right or he can't pronounce crudite because I'm a real American and, and, and Dr. Oz is a highfalutin ninny. He was lauding his social media successes. There was an article in, around this time last year, almost exactly a year ago, December 17th, 20, uh, 2022, called John Fetterman's TikTok Whisperer about how much he benefited from young people on social media boosting his campaign in these viral moments. And now he's very quick to turn around and say, well, the reason that the kids are wrong is the very media platform that helped me even be a political quantity right now. And that, frankly, came to his defense when he was at a low point on the wake of his stroke. So there's only so much you can say about someone who would be so willing to manipulate the factual record in an advantageous way instead of reckoning with what is going on in front of him. He doesn't have to agree with the kids, but to dismiss the, I think, solidly held feelings of his own constituents and to not demonstrate any kind of intellectual curiosity there in that clip as to why they believe what they believe. If you were to ask me what Zionists believe and why I think that they hold the beliefs that they do, I can give you a reason, and it's, it has some compassion in it. I've spoken to too many um, Jewish Americans who have now changed their minds, who used to be Zionists, who talk really compellingly about the extent to which they were told certain narratives and information growing up, whether it was in Hebrew school or just generally socially, the inducement of right to, uh, right to return and taking the Israel trips in their youth and how that informed their perspective. You know, there are historians that are happy to weigh in on the diverse opinions among the Jewish community on the history of Zionism. There's so much information out there, and you can engage with why people substantively feel the way that they feel, but not even acknowledge that there's an incredible amount of carnage that's been happening since October 7th to continue to allude to the tragedy of October 7th without even taking a breath to acknowledge the 20 20,000 souls that have died since then. It just it just gives it's speaking it's it's out of touch. Well, I mean, I'm sorry. Maybe he's turned off by the amount of sympathy and endorsement for what happened on October 6th, October 7th by by young activists who are, who are not his constituents, by, by the way, you're know, just talking about young people on TikTok. I mean, some young people. No, I'm talking about young people but... in Pennsylvania who helped him get elected, who knocked doors for him, who made these videos for him and helped him uh, go viral. And then he found out that they support the actions of Hamas and he can't stand with them so anymore. So your, your argument, Robbie, is that because somebody somewhere on a university campus that is not somebody in state, somewhere. That what, what, what was the poll that we pulled up? Was it 70-odd percent, 72 percent, was it, percent of young people uh, disagree with Joe Biden's handling of uh, the siege on Gaza? Okay. Whatever the overwhelming number was, those are not—the majority of young people aren't a member—don't go to college, much less are members of a pro-Palestinian group that issued a statement that you want to attribute to every American in the world. But even if that were true, your argument I mean, today— about, it to the left— but, but even if that were true, even if every single person— who is, is critical of Biden's uh, conduct here, 
signed that Palestine statement. Your argument is that jo John Fetterman should not be sympathetic to two. 20,000 innocent Palestinians No, you're putting words in my mouth. When did I say that? So what is the argument here? The, my argument is that he should have sympathy as an elected official who's a senator in the United States of America to the reason that people are so upset about Joe Biden's conduct and Israel's conduct in the Middle East is because 20,000 innocent people have been killed. At the end he of the day, either you care about that or you don't. I think it's totally unfair to say he doesn't care about that. He cares about it, and he blames— he substantially blames Hamas for the terrorist attack that has resulted in the thousands of deaths of their own side, of their own people, as this group is rooted out by the Israelis. Well, we've seen where those logic goes, and everyone's been very clear. If, if Israel murders every last man, woman, and child in Gaza, all 2.3 million people, if they were to drop a nuclear bomb, as some Israeli officials have advocated them doing— on Gaza, that it would be completely justified because 1,000 people were horribly killed on October 7th. If that's your position, that's your position. It's up to the public the to weigh on the morality of that. The U.S. dropped a nuclear bomb on a country that attacked us, and we said surrender, and they said no, and then we dropped another one, and, and we said surrender, and, and then they surrendered. And subsequently— And then we, they surrendered. And subsequently, we came up with the U.N. And as an acknowledgment that the way that World War II was handled— the bombing of Dresden, the dropping of the nuclear bomb in near Hiroshima. And the elimination Nagasaki of the Nazi regime in Imperial was Japan was wrongly handled. Moral was morally wrong. That is exactly why we came up with the League of Nations and the United Nations in the wake of World War II to better manage international disputes in a way that would have less of a cost to civilian tragedies. It's very telling that when people try to defend what Israel is doing in Palestine, people like RFK Jr., they reference wars and civilian casualties that happened in a previous dark age of international politics before we came up with the systems, rules, and laws that have now been implemented to try to improve upon this is, the barbarity that we saw in the first this part of the is last century. What we hope for this system is that it prevents the rise of something like the Nazis, not that it would constrain us from defeating them in some theoretical battle. Well, I, what good is international law then? I don't know what you're talking about with Nazis. I know that 20,000 Palestinians who've been slaughtered by the IDF in the last two months are not Nazis. 75 percent of those killed are women and children. And Israel and America have that blood on their hands. So the question is whether or not the Democratic Party and John Fetterman are going to listen to the overwhelming majority of voters, including 49 percent of Republicans and a majority of independents, who want there to be a ceasefire in Gaza because they say enough is enough, that nothing in the world justifies murdering 20,000 innocent people. And you say, I have no proof that John Fetterman cares about that. I have heard no words out of his mouth even referencing the 20,000 people died. So I think that if between the two of us jumping to conclusions about how he feels about that loss of life, I think it was very much incumbent on him to articulate that concern and not for us to project it onto him. If a ceasefire, I also want a ceasefire in that I want all violence, I want all hostility between the Israelis and the Palestinian people to end. I want it to end immediately, and then I want the Palestinians to have, um, have equal rights and political opportunity and what they deserve, and I want the Israelis to be safe from them and vice versa. That's what I want. So I would well, say I support a ceasefire. Rabbi, but in reality, that's not going to happen until the respect, terrorist force is defeated. That's—we're not—with all due respect, this isn't a conversation about what you want. 
This is a question about John Fetterman and a conversation about John Fetterman and what the Democratic Party's actions are here. John Fetterman has never articulated a desire for the end of the violence, which includes the occupation of Gaza, of the people who live there who are overwhelmingly refugees from the 1948 Nakba, where 700,000 Palestinians were forcibly removed and ethnically cleansed from their lands in what is now Israel and forced to live in Gaza. These are the children and grandchildren and survivors of that initial event. So, yes, you can sit here and say everything that you want to say, but what we know is that while Joe Biden is saying, I ostensibly support a two-state solution, Benjamin Netanyahu is saying, I absolutely reject a two-state solution. There will never be Palestinian independence. I don't know how many times he has to say it, how many times his spokespeople have to say it before we start living in the realm of reality. God bless your hopes and dreams. I, I get what you want in the abstract, but the reality is, are there, is there going to be political pressure on politicians who are acting in a way that would thwart that outcome? Because that's what the United States has been doing, and that's what Israel has been doing for the last 75 years. Well, as I say, every time we discuss this, no, I would cut off all the funding today. Yesterday was the best time to stop funding the Israelis. We don't need to pay for it. That's fine. We don't disagree on that. All right. Well, stick around. We'll have a rising for you right after this. We have a massive update in the case of whistleblower and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. A lawsuit by four American journalists and Assange allies against the CIA advanced in federal court on Tuesday after a federal judge threw out an appeal by the agency to toss the case. Politico reported Manhattan-based U.S. District Court judge ruled the four Americans who visited Assange while he was holed up at the Ecuadorian embassy in London several years ago can proceed with their suit over allegations that the CIA stole data copied from their phones during those visits. Now, you might recall that Assange entered the Ecuadorian embassy in London back in 2012 and was given asylum while the Swedish government tried to extradite him on a rape investigation. It was Sweden's longest-running preliminary investigation ever, and police eventually dropped the probe without filing any charges. Now, a separate U.S. effort to extradite him is still ongoing. And that extradition might be coming sooner rather than later. Human rights lawyer and wife to Julian, Stella Assange, shared that, quote, the public hearing for the WikiLeaks founders extradition before the UK High Court will be on February 20th, 2024. It may be the final chance for the UK to stop Julian's extradition. It's now or never. Joining us now to discuss the story is film producer at Shipton House and brother to Julian Assange, Gabriel Shipton. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, good to be with you, Brianna and Robbie. It's, it's always such a pleasure to have you here. For folks who aren't as familiar with the contours of the CIA case, can you explain a little bit um, who were the four visitors and the extent of the privacy invasion that happened? Well, uh, the four visitors uh, were um, two, two lawyers, two of Julian's lawyers from the United States. Uh, Margaret Kunstler is one of them. Uh, and two um, journalists. Uh, uh, John Goetz is uh, one of the journalists. He's a, uh, or they're all American citizens, uh, and they're all, uh, you know, suing the CIA or and Mike Pompeo actually for breaching their Fourth Amendment rights. And what what actually happened when you went to visit Julian in the embassy uh, after 2017, when when the security company that was supposed to be protecting him was co-opted by the CIA and started surveilling him was that uh, you had to hand over your phone, uh, your passport, 
um, any other identity that you had. And you know, it was you were told it was for security reasons, but what was actually happening was the security company uh, was opening your passport, uh, taking photos of your passport, opening up your phone, uh, taking photos of what's inside your phone, your IMA number, which is unique to each uh, device, and even uh, you know examining the contents of your phone or other electronic devices uh, that that were left there at the front desk. Now. That information was then passed back to uh, the CIA through this UC Global security company. Uh, and that was uh, revealed uh, through a huge investigation uh, that Yahoo News did actually uh, back in September 2021 when they uh, cited 30 sources, current and former uh, intelligence sources who were close uh, to the Pompeo CIA and the Trump White House um, outlining um, this, uh, this you know, clandestine operation that was hand happening in the middle of London. And it wasn't only these um, journalists and lawyers who were being spied upon, but it was also Julian. Uh, his meetings with his doctors were recorded on camera uh, and and uh, microphone. Uh, you know, they had the whole place bugged. Essentially, it was a CIA black site running in the middle of London. Hmm. Incredible. Uh, so tell us more about the legal effort. So this is a lawsuit you know, by the by the American citizens um, who were who were treated this way. Um, you know, what, this gets into what sort of protections all of us have against this kind of spying by our government, you know, which we, I think, all believe ought to be stronger. And it's a shame that they're not. But, you know, what chance do they have of prevailing here? Well, the, the judgment uh, has now said that the proceedings can go ahead. There was a motion to dismiss uh, from uh, the CIA and Mike Pompeo, and the judge has said, well, we can go ahead um, based on the electronic devices and whether those electronic devices uh, were compromised and whether the data within them uh, was kept and uh, sent back to the CIA. And I think this will be very uh, very, very revealing. Uh, you know, a lot should come out in court uh, during these proceedings uh, that, that will affect Julian's case as well, but also, uh, you know, the Amer American citizens who uh, seem to be these days more and more uh, spied on. Um, you know, freedom of speech is being curtailed uh, all over the place, whether it's uh, social media or the national security style investigative reporting that Julian was uh, involved in. So this uh, you know, what's happened to Julian and, and the people around him and these journalists uh, is just, it's just growing and growing. It's becoming this huge, huge scandal, uh, a scandal for the Trump administration, but now a scandal for the Biden administration as they continue to pursue uh, Julian with this unprecedented espionage act prosecution. Gabriel, what can we expect of this uh, final uh, hearing on February 20th of next year? Well, this is the, uh, you know, this sort of end of the road uh, for Julian in the UK uh, court uh, system. He has uh, been waiting for this hearing uh, since they submitted their appeal application uh, back in July 22. Uh, so he's been waiting. It'll be almost two years um, since uh, since they submitted their application until this hearing. Uh, now, uh, during this hearing, it will be a two-day hearing uh, where uh, some high court, two high court judges who we don't know who they are yet, 
uh, will hear the appeal points and decide whether to give Julian leave to appeal, um, as in, you know, set a further date for to have a full appeal hearing on these appeal points, or whether they will uh, reject uh, reject the appeal application and order Julian's extradition. So really, it, it could potentially be the end of the road for Julian uh, in the UK legal system. Uh, if those judges turn around and reject that application, uh, then he could be extradited within uh, 24 hours. He still has an opportunity to apply to the ECHR, but we know that the uh, Home Secretary has already um, started looking at ways uh, how to get Julian extradited as quickly as possible uh, if, this, uh, if this application is rejected. Do we have any update on his physical health, his, his state? I know we, you've kept us informed when we've previously had you on, um, on how he's you know, literally physically doing. Yeah, look, uh, Robbie, he's hanging in there. You know, it's um, it's it's uh, it's such an ordeal for us. Now, this will be his fifth fifth, fifth Christmas uh, inside a maximum security uh, prison, uh, not charged with any, uh, not convicted of any crime, uh, solely fighting this extradition. Um, you know, I, I'm always amazed by you know his resilience and his fighting spirit. But over time, he is getting worn down and, and he is in a very delicate position health-wise, uh, you know, both mentally and, and physically. And, and that's why it's so important that, you know, we get him out of prison and uh, before it's too late, uh, before he sort of succumbs to this whole process and before he's extradited to the United States. I'm curious if there's anything that's changed in terms of the legal arguments, the sympathies of the judges uh, that are involved, the weight and force of public opinion and whether that's shifted over the years that leads you to be hopeful about there being a different outcome here or whether you think the appeal is going to be unsuccessful. Well, I think what's what's hopeful is that we get another another few months to keep uh, the political campaign um, going to keep that momentum that we've uh, seen um, developing in the United States, particularly in the Congress, um, you know, after the bipartisan letter led by uh, Congressman McGovern and, and Rep Massey uh, that, that was released in October, there is now a bipartisan resolution that's um, been led by Paul Gosar, Republican Paul Gosar, uh, that also has uh, Rep McGovern on that one too, and as well as eight or nine others. Uh, so there is a sort of growing movement uh, in the political uh, class within within uh, within the United States who are who are, I guess, you know, gaining more courage to speak out about this uh, prosecution. Uh, in terms of the the legal landscape in the United Kingdom, uh, there are some uh, some positive signs around a decision uh, regarding. Uh, regarding um, sending asylum seekers to Rwanda. That was a Supreme Court decision uh, that, that, could affect, uh, that could affect Julian's um, appeal, but it's, uh, we're not too sure about that at the moment. But the, real, the, political and the political campaign and the grassroots campaign has built incredible momentum. And uh, we, 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 we will continue to see that as well as the Australian government who will continue to make representations on Julian's behalf as well as um, you know, behind the scenes uh, diplomatic efforts uh, by the Australian government that we hope uh, will lead to his release. Gabriel Shipton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both.
have young voters soured so much on President Joe Biden that they're now supporting Donald Trump? For The New York Times, for the first time, Mr. Trump leads President Biden among the youngest voters in a Times-Siena national survey, 49 percent to 43 percent. It's enough to give him a narrow 46 to 44 lead among registered voters overall. Young voters say Biden hasn't delivered on his campaign promises and isn't making their lives better. Let's watch some of the disaffected speak with NBC. Give me the emotion yeah. that you have looking at your choice this election. Not not enthused. Uh, I'd say overall I feel very pragmatic and strategic about it. All of these issues that, that are popular with Democrats, he has not only not addressed, but often gone the entire opposite way on. I mean, I can look at like almost every issue in my head that's important to me, and I see a failure on Biden's part. Biden's age is also playing into voters' concerns. Per Axios, polls indicate that more than 70 percent of voters have concerns about Biden serving a second term because of his age. However, the president is in apparent denial, aides tell Axios. The outlet reports that the first lady and staffers to the president are frustrated by Biden's blanket refusal to acknowledge his own physical limitations. Now, here to discuss Biden's young voter woes is host of Savvy Sab's podcast, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome back, Sabrina. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, our pleasure. So every day we talk about the more bad poll results for Biden, more bad news for Biden. Now specifically down. First, it was specifically down in the swing states. Now it's specifically down with young people down so far that it actually looks right now like Donald Trump could somehow win the youngest age demographic. Um, what is going on here? So I actually worked with this population for quite some time at the universities. And I think what people have to understand is that by the time they would reach me when they were 18 years old, this particular population was already incredibly resourceful. Uh, they are less likely to buy into the narrative from mainstream media. They're more likely to seek out other outlets and opinions. Uh, they had resources at their fingertips that I think my generation did not have growing up. There was no uh, independent media show to watch on YouTube when I was growing up because YouTube didn't exist. So there are a lot more platforms that they have access to as well. And I think that they're just less likely to buy into the two-party system as well, too. But I think when they're comparing Joe Biden to Donald Trump, they're thinking about two things. They're thinking about the economy and they're thinking about foreign policy decisions. So when it comes to the economy, I think the reason why some of these voters are walking away from Joe Biden is that even though Joe Biden has claimed that he's created all of these jobs, a lot of these, these graduates, particularly the undergraduate uh, college students, they're graduating and they're, the job offers that they're receiving when I spoke to them, a lot of these are gig positions that don't have full-time benefits. So when Joe Biden says in a press conference that he's created all these jobs, but he doesn't explain to you what those jobs are and if they actually offer benefits, that's a problem in that generation in particular that's out in the job market. They can see that Joe Biden isn't being honest, and then they can make that comparison to Trump's economy when he was president. How were they doing in reference to inflation? How were they doing in reference to uh, wages? So they can make the comparison there. Then there's the foreign policy decisions that Joe Biden has made. While I would not call Donald Trump anti-war, I will say that he didn't start any new wars. We now have two international conflicts under Joe Biden. 
possibly a third, considering the U.S. government is willing to go to war with Yemen now. So these are really big issues. And I think this is the first time that I've seen, at least in my adult life, where people are actually unwilling to vote for a presidential candidate because of their foreign policy decisions, particularly the younger voters. But I think this population in particular, what they have said to me is that they feel like their voices are not heard and they're sincerely worried about their future, particularly their economic future. They're not even trying to think about purchasing a home or starting a family. They're trying to use the money that they do have on experiences because they've told me there's no way they're going to be able to buy a house or start a family in the first place. The binary nature of our political system seems to be forcing even this conversation into a zero-sum game where there's a kind of built-in presumption as we're talking that votes that are being lost from Biden or lost by Biden are going to Donald Trump when polls on all of the issue areas that you just uh weighed in on there seem to suggest that younger voters are leaving Biden because they want a more progressive, if you can even call it that, some of these are just such mainstream desires, like having a living wage, having some guarantee of health care, despite having the poorer employment uh, prospects that you just described, et cetera, et cetera. Those are what's uh, driving voters. So um, how does bringing in the uh, interest in third-party candidacies, whether it's Cornell West, Jill Stein, uh, RFK Jr., Cenk Uger, whoever it is, uh, factor into what's going on here? Yes. Yeah, so some of the young voters I've spoken to told me that they're more willing to vote for like a Jill Stein or a Cornell West. But most of them that I've heard from said they're most likely to sit it out. Uh, some have decided to move over towards Donald Trump, or particularly some of them who are African-American voters are saying that they're going to move over towards Donald Trump. I think that when you have candidates like Jill Stein, Cornell West, and also RFK Jr. as well, I think that they're speaking to certain issues that really appeal to younger people. So we all know Jill Stein and Cornell West, they tend to have the same position when it comes to Israel and Gaza. So a lot of the younger voters that are out there protesting in the streets, they're looking for a candidate that has the same position on that issue as they do. Now, this is different compared to 2020. We didn't have this war with Israel and Gaza. There was still the, the occupation and oppression, but we didn't have this war. So at that point in time, Joe Biden didn't have to really concern himself with that. We also didn't have this war with Ukraine. So it's a very different dynamic now. And I think more younger voters, if they do come out to vote, I think more of them will go towards a Jill Stein or a Cornell West. I just saw a poll recently that showed that Jill Stein is polling 7% among uh, younger voters, which is pretty significant for a third party candidate. I think RFK Jr. was polling at 15%. Uh, but I think that's because some of the younger voters are still not aware of his position when it comes to this issue with Israel and Gaza. I think once they hear more from him about this, I think they're more likely to be turned away from him on that position. But the big thing that I keep hearing from people is the economy. They're still dealing with inflation. They're still dealing with finding a job, a permanent job that is gonna give them benefits and they're un unsure about their future and they feel like they just don't see a path forward. You compare that to Donald Trump's presidency in 2020, and they didn't have some of those same concerns. And I think that's the big thing, and that's raising a lot of flags for people. What could Joe Biden do between now and Election Day to bring people back into the fold? Does he have to hope, what, the Gaza issue 
comes to some end of its own accord or the economy magically gets better and people um, respond to that or, or, or credit Biden's policies with achieving that? I think two things need to happen. Number one, he's going to have to call for a permanent ceasefire and stop funding Israel with arms. That's a big one that will resonate with the younger voters. The other issue is Joe Biden has to actually build a base, which he never did. We all have to go back to the 2020 uh, election. You got to remember some of these younger voters supported Bernie Sanders. Bernie actually had the youth vote. When Bernie dropped out and he told those younger voters to support Joe Biden, it's not like they were passionate about voting for Joe Biden. They were just doing what Bernie told them to do so that we wouldn't get Donald Trump. So there was that fear mongering of Donald Trump. However, the problem is, and I warned about this, Joe Biden never actually built, built a solid base. So what you had were people who were voting against Donald Trump. You had younger voters who voted for Biden because Bernie told them to so that you don't get Donald Trump. And you had the loyal Democrat voters that are going to vote for the Democrat candidate, regardless of who they are anyway, because they're going to support the party. Now we enter Joe Biden's possible reelection, and he's starting to see he never built a solid base. So I would not be surprised if Joe Biden loses in 2024. And I'm pretty sure they're going to blame young voters. They're going to blame African-American men. They're also going to blame the third party uh, candidates. But the blame lies on Joe Biden for not fulfilling his campaign promises. Mm, Sabrina Salvati, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has pledged to fight a new Texas law allowing state authorities to prosecute migrants entering the United States from Mexico. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said the goal of the bill is to, quote, stop the tidal wave of illegal entry into Texas. Here's a bit more from Abbott at the bill's signing. Now they're going to have the ability to arrest them uh, and prosecute them, make them subject to jail. This law I'm about to sign will fund many more miles of wall and barrier just like this. Senate Bill 3 will help to deter illegal immigration and support our law enforcement response to the, border, to the Biden border crisis. Donald Trump recently had this to say about immigrants entering the United States during a rally in New Hampshire this past weekend. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. When asked about Trump's remarks, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell reportedly said, quote, well, it strikes me that didn't bother him when he appointed Elaine Chao Secretary of Transportation, referring to his wife who immigrated to the United States from Taiwan when she was eight years old. And Donald Trump has subsequently besmirched a thousand times over. He keeps calling her names. Yeah, it was interesting. Some people were reading that as him defending Trump, saying, well, he, of course, he doesn't oh, care about no, immigrants. no, I don't think he was doing that. Because he appointed him. He was showing yeah. the hypocrisy of Trump. I, I yeah. thought it was a defense of his wife and a dig at Trump. That's what I thought, too. But I did see some liberals saying, oh, this is unconscionable. He'll even throw his wife under the bus and in a defense of Donald Trump. Yeah, no, I don't think that's what he was doing. Yeah, I think he me, was pointing out that that didn't matter to Trump so much. Again, I think I mean, Trump was obviously very imprecise and probably maybe meant illegal immigrants, not all immigrants. I mean, I mean, everyone was an immigrant at some point, so that doesn't make a lot of sense. But Almost uh, everyone. Okay, yes. Um, so uh, Mexico's objection, so I, 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 I bet I can guess what Mexico's objection to this bill is, mm -hmm. I, as, as I was just reading. Um, so this 
if you are arrest, you can be arrested for um, being in the country illegally, and it's a six-month jail sentence on the first offense, and then a 20-year sentence the second time, and then you're deported. But you can waive the jail time if you agree to self-deport to Mexico, regardless of whether you are actually from Mexico. So I can imagine the Mexican government, um, in, in some ways, this would just be putting illegal immigrants from elsewhere into the U.S. than into Mexico. Yeah. So they're not going to like that. I mean, look, almost specific um, pushback that he's given so far is that this is an abridgment of due process rights. Um, he has uh, implored Mexican-Americans to not vote for conservatives, for Abbott, for Donald Trump, because of these policies. He pointed out that, Mex uh, that Texas, like 10 states, the United States of America, all used to be Mex uh, Mexico and have large uh, Mexican-American populations, and that this is an attack on them as well. Um, We'll, we'll see how far those kinds of arguments go. When I first read that he was planning to challenge the law, I balked a little, saying, well, what standing does he have? It is interesting that he's right, that people are being put in this coercion, coercive position where they have to face up to, to what, 20 years in jail, or alternatively, self-deport back to a country that they might not have a legal right to be in themselves. So it's messy. Right. And of course, as we discussed earlier this week, there is this question of whether or not a state has the right to preempt uh, federal jurisdiction over immigration questions in the first instance, regardless of how you feel about the political contours of this particular disagreement. Right. So since we talked about this yesterday, I was thinking about a greater, in greater detail of, of how I would feel about this. Obviously, I don't, I don't want the government to harass people, like, or just, or bother people, or even have anything to do with people, really. Um, so the idea of police officers or government officials asking everyone to see, like, Documentate. Yeah, that's not something I want the government going around and doing. Um, if you've committed some crime, is it horrible if the police, after arresting you for, I don't know, let's say, violence, domestic violence, or shop, or perhaps you know some serious crime, and then they and then they can can ask your legal status? That doesn't bother me so much, but. I would want the person held accountable for the underlying crime anyway. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know what you know what we're getting at here. Again, if it was if it was the case that we had waves and waves and waves of immigrants who were responsible for all of this new crime, I could see the justification. But as we discussed yesterday, it really isn't. It's not specific to immigrants or illegal immigrants. Um, crime is off the charts in Washington D.C. Um, largest murder rate this year in, in years and years and years. We're like the, the carjacking capital of the United States right now. It's not immigrants doing it. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with illegal immigration. It's, it's a huge problem, needs to be addressed, is not an immigration problem. It is also worth noting there was a huge story earlier this week, um, many outlets covering it. Uh, right now I'm reading from the Washington Post, uh, pointing out that despite what public perception is, crime declined in the third quarter of 2023 relative to the same uh, quarter in 2022. Crime is down. 8% in jurisdictions that reported data that represent three-quarters of the United States where the United States American residents live. So while, of course, there are discrete areas where crime is up, overall, despite the impression that you're getting in the news, crime is, in fact, um, down. But back to your point about um, the misapplication of a law like this, I mean, it's not far-fetched to imagine traffic stops being set up. Ostensibly, they do this sometimes for to look for drunk driving, but to 
in the process of that, ask people for their papers. You have to ask yourself, who is it that's going to be stopped routinely by the police based on the look of their criminality? Are Latino Americans, Mexican Americans, who are in large numbers in the state of Texas, going to be subject to disproportionate policing because they can be credibly stopped over and pulled over on the suspicion of being an undocumented immigrant? And while you imagine a scenario where there is an underlying crime that um, um, leads to some follow-up about their immigration status, you could also imagine a world where the underlying crime is suspicion of having an illegal immigration status that then leads to them being disproportionately mm -hmm. stopped and frisked and surveilled and arrested for other kinds of crimes. So the yeah, I, I don't think they should pull you over for speeding and then ask for your documentation. Um, that's not what we want going on. Right. But if, if, <laughs> if history is any indication, these kinds of laws are um, abused in exactly those sorts of ways. So there are huge civil liberty implications here. Um, and I don't think AMLO is wrong to say to Mexican-Americans, this affects you regardless of your, you being an American. Um, so we'll see where this goes. I, it, it is a really fascinating move also not to not see some more of some more thought going into a law like this. You know it's going to face some significant court challenges. You saw how this went down when they tried to pass a law like this in Arizona. And to not to have to have a detail like maybe don't force people who aren't Mexican to self deport self deport to Mexico in there. It just seems like an obvious own goal. Yeah. All right. Stick around with us. We'll have a rising for you right after this. Will it ever end? Ukrainian President Zelensky's military wants to mobilize up to 500,000 more men to fight in his war against Russia. At a news conference in Kiev this week, Zelensky said his commanders were seeking, quote, nearly half a million new individuals and that this was a sensitive and costly issue. The European Union Council has adopted a 12th package of sanctions against Russia, focusing on a Russian-origin diamond import ban, as well as imposing additional import and export bans on Russia. Stateside, some Republicans are still pushing restraint on further arming our ally in Eastern Europe. Let's watch what Ron Johnson had to say this week. Every day that goes by, more Ukrainians die, more Russian conscripts die, and I take no joy in that, and more Ukraine gets destroyed. So end it. Stop adding fuel to the flames. I mean, I don't, I don't like saying, I'm not going to like the result. We're not going to like the result. But every day that goes by, the result gets worse and worse and worse. Recognize that reality. If, if there's a problem in Washington, D.C., is just the denial of reality. I'd say it's the main problem with, with liberalism. They, they deny the reality of human nature. Uh, but in this case, I mean, we're just denying the reality of the situation, fighting a proxy war, and it's Ukrainians that are, and Russian conscripts that are suffering. And, and, and we glibly talk about, uh, well, no Americans are dying. Well, God, other people are. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that offend you? I mean, I find it's, it's depraved. It's offensive to have people claim, well, you know, the beauty of, you know, $60 billion, that's mainly going to go to jobs in America. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think jobs in America are worth the destruction of a country and the slaughter of people. Hmm. Yeah, some wise words there. And it's also, it's not just that, I mean, the $60 billion, it gets spent in America among specific industries. So it does, like, it, it, yes, it stimulates economic growth in some places. But if that money was just spent in other areas or was, or 
frankly, instead of the government spending it, was people had $60 billion more dollars in their own pocketbooks to, you know, to, to buy homes or buy groceries or invest in their business. That would also be economic opportunity. So, so merely, like, shifting the money into one specific or uh, industry is good for that industry, but it's not like on net economic growth. Yeah, I much prefer a redistribution that's based on need as opposed to funneling it to the defense industry, uh, because the defense industry uh, made it, manages to revolving door itself into politics and be, I don't know, the Secretary of Defense after you for, for previously right. served on Raytheon's board. And then but, they blow stuff up, and then which, they blow is, stuff which up. is destructive. And, exactly. So if you spend it on, on things that if you spend it on not blowing things up, then you you have the economic growth, and you have whatever the money if the money was spent to to build a bridge or to or, or you know whatever it is that's that's all to the good. When <laughs> it's spent to like you know dig a hole and then fill in the hole and then make another hole, do a green not... transition, uh, fix the oh, infrastructure, yeah. you know, hmm. do the kinds of things that China is doing to prepare itself uh, for the next century uh, in which it's going to trounce the competition. Yeah, I, I agree with your redistributional tendencies uh, there, Robbie. Uh, and look, it, the writing has been on a wall for a really long time. I see pattern now about who's trying to withdraw themselves from their previous uh, unconstrained support for the war in Ukraine because they can see the writing on the wall. They can see uh, political support dissolving. You immediately, in the wake of October 7th, saw that there was a new war in town with Zelensky. Uh, trying to go link, to Israel, link the two things together, and being told, "No, you're not. This is not for you. Don't come." Dude, <laughs> he got Kamala Harris. Do not come. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it, it is sad. I mean, it, it it is true that America bragged about the efficiency of using Ukrainian bodies to fight its proxy war with Russia. And I think the Ukrainian people should also have a lot of frustration with Zelensky for going on along with that very obvious project for reasons that obviously had very little to do with protecting the interests of the people of Ukraine. If we go back and back and back to what preceded this conflict, we can have a conversation about Victoria Newland and America's machinations to make sure the leader of Ukraine was somebody that would go along with our bidding. And this is what you get. It's not the people of Ukraine's fault that they're in this situation, and certainly they didn't deserve to get invaded by Russia. But what we have to keep in mind is that there was a peace deal on the table about a month after the invasion happened that would have left Ukraine in a better position in terms of territory lost and certainly lives lost than we are in the position we're in now almost two years out from the conflict. And the people who are responsible for scuttling that deal are the United States of America and the UK. Yeah. Yeah, and here we are, still still paying for it, still um, naively thinking maybe that this is going to lead in the policy direction we want, although now there's reason to presume, I think, behind closed doors, the administration has conceded, although it knew all along, its own intelligence officials um, telling both U.S. policymakers and Zelensky and his generals from the beginning that this was going to be an uphill battle at best, that their plan was not solid, that they actually clashed with Zelensky over what he should be doing with the, with the support we were giving him. And, um, and, and here we are, the, the naive belief that this would end with Putin's government being toppled. Uh, we see what's come of that. Putin is in, in just as strong a position as ever. I don't know what new sanctions are going to do, other than attempt to further immiserate the people of, of Russia. I mean, they've weathered them perfectly 
with, without much problem at all. I, I mean, I've seen arguments that they're in like better shape than they were before. I as well. Um, which is, again, is not surprising. Where is this? Show me the evidence that sanctions have this long and established history of resulting in the policy outcome that we want. When, when sanctions get applied, then we get the government we want, or we get the package of policies that is, uh, that is favorable to the U.S. It never seems to happen to me. So I don't understand why we'd expect yeah. it any differently this time. I mean, the posture that America has taken toward Ukraine and all of the kind of self-righteous bloviating about the need to defend the great people of Ukraine and then having an about-face like this also undermines our credibility more broadly in geopolitical conflicts. You position yourself as the policeman of the world, the great humanitarian, the person who's going to intercede on behalf of wronged people. But there's a viral clip going on around right now of Karine Jean-Pierre from October 5th talking about how cruel and inhumane it is that between 50 or 60 Ukrainians were killed in a Russian bombing, how grievous and horrible it is, and how it, it, it demands America's support for Ukraine, because 50 to 60 people were tragically killed by Russia in an air bombing in Ukraine. Of course, in the two months since then, we've had 20,000 people killed in air bombings of our very close ally Israel of Gaza. And there's been none of the same hand-wringing or, or tears from the podium. Remember, there were literal tears from the podium from, I think, John Kirby as he discussed the genuinely tragic civilian losses in Ukraine. So both backtracking on Ukraine, having a different standard for Ukraine and the people of Gaza, all of these things go further to undermine our credibility on the international stage. So no wonder in the wake of this crisis, in the wake of Ukraine, you see a realignment happening with the parts of the world that are tired of being controlled by the moral tyranny of United of America, where we don't have a moral leg to stand on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fine, and I think it's welcome to express moral support and solidarity and to condemn brutality and tyranny and invasions. That, but that doesn't—and this is, it comes from a different, you know, school of foreign policy thought than the one that dominates in Washington, that has, do that has dominated the Republican Party for 20 years and then—and has kind of somewhat fallen out of fashion and has come very much to dominate, to dominate the Democratic Party as well, the idea that we are the the U.S. government is obligated to do something. The tag the U.S. taxpayers are obligated to pay something to manage these sectional conflicts half a world away. Um, that somehow this involves our foreign policy interests and is what's keeping us safe is to uh, fuel these conflicts without actually resolving them. Just fuel, just keep them going, keep them hot. That that is somehow serving American foreign policy interests. Um, it's not something that people believe. They've never really believed that. Um, but it's something our foreign policy consensus has strongly believed since, you know, since 9-11, since frankly. Yeah. And uh, it, is, it has been repudiated over and over again. The American people do their best to try to repudiate it at the ballot box. But it is hard to do. It's a multi-headed hydra that regardless yeah. of what power no is options. in control, it comes back. Even, even candidates who run as... And seemingly principled yeah. anti-war. Barack Obama was a constitutional scholar who thought a lot, who claimed that a lot of the uh, the architecture of the war on terror was illegal, was unviolated the Constitution. I mean, you could you could even you could take the position ideally it's good, but it violates the Constitution, so we can't do it. And yet comes into office and and continues, if not escalates, so many of those very same things. Yeah. And then it, that makes the American people very disillusioned. Well, what? Well, if that guy who actually did articulate. When he ran, that's why he was so popular, an opposition to that, and we put him in charge, and none of that changed. Maybe some other things changed, but none of that changed. Yeah. 
Yeah, what absolutely. are we supposed to do? And in this situation, we talked about this a little bit in the youth segment that we did, there really is no mainstream candidate that I think you can argue would take any different position right now um, when, with respect to the escalations that we're seeing now in the Middle East. Not in Israel, maybe on Ukraine. Maybe on Ukraine. Yeah. Um, but certainly not in the new war, and certainly not also with Taiwan. Remember, we saw so many people who were critical of our investments in Ukraine saying basically, um, and this is, I think, the kind of Tucker Carlson wing of this argument, that we're basically saving up our energies for the real battle, which is going to war with China um, in the South Pacific. Hmm. All right, stick around. We're rising right after this. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is gaining ground on her former boss in new 2024 presidential primary polling. The latest CBS News YouGov poll released on Sunday found that Haley has consolidated much of the non-Trump vote. Among likely GOP primary voters, 29% say they would vote for the former South Carolina governor, putting her 15 points behind Trump. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson sat down and discussed the possibility of a Trump-Haley 2024 presidential ticket in a recent episode of the Tim Pool podcast. Would you vote for Trump if he chose Nikki as VP? And would you guys vote no? for Trump? I well, mean, that's the question that I asked you specifically. Well, I, right. I, I, I would not only not vote for that ticket, I would, I would advocate against it as strongly as I could. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I well, that, that's, I, just, I, that's just poison. I mean, here's someone who's actively opposed to the interests of the country I grew up in, who endorsed the BLM riots, and who is not only is, is not left, but is neoliberal in the darkest, most speaking of nihilist, nihilistic mm -hmm. way, and has no real popular support. Is a, is a creature of the oligarchs. So yeah, that would be that would be reason to oppose the ticket. Even Trump, Haley is a no go. Nikki Haley. He would get assassinated immediately if that were the case. Yeah, and by the way, I just can't yeah, yeah. imagine a world where that could happen. That would be so crazy. I mean, anything could happen, of course, but picking Nikki Haley, um, who's utterly treacherous and utterly dismissive Christina? of like, the interests of Americans, yeah. It's a no-go for me, uh, but it's a yes for BlackRock. Meanwhile, once primary frontrunner Ron DeSantis took to MSNBC this week, where he walked the MAGA tightrope and subtly called out Trump. Look, I think Donald Trump, uh, he, when he was president, uh, I think that he really didn't take uh, some of the action that he could have constitutionally taken. Uh, and so I, I understand there's a narrative saying he's going to be much different this next term. But I look back, you know, what didn't he do? You know, he didn't move forcefully uh, to build the border wall. Uh, that languished for years. Uh, he didn't fire people uh, like Anthony Fauci from the COVID task force when many conservatives, including me in Florida, were saying they needed to go different direction, he even gave Fauci an award his last day in office. A lot of the people he appointed, he since trashed after leaving office, but he could have fired them. He didn't really take any action uh, to reform the bureaucracy or to curb the administrative state. So uh, I, I think what, what is being said would be him acting in, in ways that actually were not how he acted before. He deferred a lot of his presidency mm -hmm. uh, to some of these people that he now criticizes. I don't know if that's walking the MAGA tightrope or jumping up and down on the MAGA hat altogether. <laughs> Tucker Carlson, uh, meanwhile, uh, had something to say uh, for his supporters as well. Can I just ask a question since you all are so on the Internet and, like, I'm not that much? Um, you really get the sense that Ron DeSantis, who I liked as governor, uh, the people who represent him online are the nastiest, the stupidest, 
and the most zero-sum people I've ever yes. seen in my life. And I don't think that reflects him, but it's like, this is kind of small ball. And by the way, these purported conservatives, Ron DeSantis changed his view, and I like him, okay? I think he's been a good governor. I just want to be clear about that. I know him personally. I like him. But his donor, Ken Griffin, told him to change his view on Ukraine from it's a regional mm -hmm. conflict we shouldn't get involved in to it's a super important thing we should send more money. One donor got him to change his view, and all these so-called conservatives are supporting that like it's the most important thing ever. I, like, who are these people, and what is their problem? Like, what is going on with them? So I will disagree with Tucker Carlson on DeSantis's supporters being more unpleasant to deal with than anyone else. This is giving Bernie bro energy to me here. <laughs> DeSantis certainly has some very militant supporters, people who really prefer him to Donald Trump and are frustrated that the rest of the Republican electorate can't get on board with, we're going to do Trump, but more if you just, if you just do DeSantis. And, and their frustration is showing, and they lash out. But like Trump supporters are some are some of them some of the, I mean his advocates in the Republican primary system are just as deranged as anyone else. Laura Loomer is completely like crazy. Uh, she's the most vehemently mm -hmm. pro-Trump person on earth. Um, she's I mean she's so she she like actually is often recirculating Democratic talking points against DeSantis because she's so like poison brain poisoned against anyone but Trump. Look, people want their person, and, and the fight is ugly and angry at times. Um, that's just politics. Yeah. I, 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 never, I never like the, like, oh, well, you have uniquely bad supporters. Yeah. Everybody has excited people on their I, I similarly think that Tucker Carlson's criti criticisms of Nikki Haley are kind of desperate. He keeps coming back to the same well of she loved the Black Lives Matter riots. Um, that like you would have to have never listened to a word Nikki Haley has ever said to believe that's the case. I googled it up real quick. What she was saying in the wake of Black Lives Matter in South Carolina, she said most of the people who now live in terror, uh, most of the people who now live in terror because local police who are too intimidated to do their jobs are black. She said criticizing the protests and the pushback and the criticism of the police. Black lives do matter, and they have been disgracefully jeopardized by the movement BLM that has laid waste to Ferguson and Baltimore. So I think the objection, if anything, is that she maybe acknowledged that black lives do matter. Maybe that makes you woke to say that black lives, just like all people in the world, <laughs> their lives have value and should be protected, and that as a governor, she needs to protect their safety and well-being just like she does everybody else. If Tucker wants to come out and say that he thinks that's objectionable, he should just come out and say it. But the idea that she was ever supportive of Black Lives Matter in any meaningful way, I think, is, again, just going back to the same well of trying to undermine the fact that she is closing the gap in a really meaningful way. I, I'm sorry, I called this. When I watch those debates and the news cycle is all about Vivek Ramaswamy, we have seen a pattern that his polls keep going down after those performances, despite them being conversation pieces on the cable news networks. And Nikki Haley keeps going up. Now, this is not an endorsement of her politics. It's certainly not an endorsement of Vivek Ramaswamy's politics either. But I do think that people are underestimating the extent to which a lot of people want someone who sounds nice and normal and professional and qualified. Remember when we did that segment, oddly, about um, uh, uh, O.J. Simpson and how he loved both Nikki Haley and 
uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, mm -hmm. even though they couldn't be more opposite on mm -hmm. foreign policy and a number of other issues. There's a lot of Americans like that who just say, oh, Nikki Haley seems normal. Nikki Haley seems professional. Nikki Haley seems qualified. Nikki Haley isn't puning other people's parenting skills in the debate stage. You know, Nikki, you know, Nikki Haley isn't making unfair personal attacks. And they don't care that she has a hawkish foreign policy. And that is why she's closing the gap especially when Vivek Ramaswamy is simply styling himself as a proto-Trump. And when the real thing is in contention, there's just no need to throw your lot in with the imitation. Yeah, that is the issue, is that if you don't, if you, if you like Trump, you can vote for him. Um, I, I don't know. Nikki Haley is the one running on the most um, kind of anti-Trump ticket who's actually getting some traction. Chris Christie obviously has failed to get any traction. Mike Pence didn't get any traction. Um, other people, we can't even recall their names, didn't get any traction, obviously. I think if, I think if it was just head-to-head, -head, her against Ron DeSantis or her against even Vivek Ramaswamy, um, it would not surprise me to see her not winning that matchup because of the level of animosity in the in the Republican primary field, the level of animosity for her. I'm, I'm just looking for more comments she might have made on the Black Lives Matter issue. Um, here she is in 2015 saying, black lives do matter and they have been disgracefully jeopardized by the movement that has laid That's waste to Ferguson I just read. and Baltimore. That's yeah. what I just read. Yeah, so I, I don't, I, I, I would see, before, uh, I'm not a big Nikki Haley fan, so I, I, I'm, I'm willing to hear <laughs> for more information on no, how she did not handle this to my Tucker satisfaction. specifically before reference a tweet that she had made like in the immediate aftermath mm -hmm. of uh, George Floyd's killing, where she said something about how this is a moment for like public national reckoning. And that's what he took issue with. That was not a pining on the, the validity of mm. any given protest or how people should protest or how people should express themselves. And so again, it's coming down to Tucker Carlson. Are you saying it's wrong? Like, if you don't think it's a moment for national reckoning, that's fine. But saying, t trying to tie her to a whole host of other actions, because like many of us, after watching a 10-minute video of someone getting choked out to death by a police officer on the ground while he was calling for help, thought, oh gosh, maybe we should look in the mirror and see whether or not we need to reform some aspect of our policing. I mean, okay, if that's the line you want to take. But that was broadly uh, the public opinion at the time. And concurrently, people think that it was a bad thing for him to be killed that way by a police officer on camera. So if you're trying to indict her for that, I'm not sure that's going to work. Well, yeah, people think it was a bad thing, obviously, for a police officer to kill someone that they had no reason to do that, who was already, who was, who was cat, who could have been handcuffed and put in the car, and there was, there, none of this would have ever happened, but for the actions of that police officer, who should have been and has been held accountable. Um, the criticism from the right is of the broader movement that then engaged in um, um, looting and widespread destruction, and also the, the, I would argue, myopic racial focus of it when police um, holding police officials accountable can be and should be a broader issue, while still talking, of course, about the racial implications when they are uh, merited. Um, my, right, my, I, I also <laughs> have a lot of criticism of Nikki Haley. It's not really along these lines. It's, it's merely for her foreign policy, which I would guess is also something Tucker doesn't like about her since he's a voice yeah, for the, stick, I mean, he was going to after. the program. Like, there's plenty to criticize about Nikki Haley without yeah. having to reach for one time she said something vaguely sympathetic about wanting to protect the welfare of black people, and therefore she's a woke scold. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, like Tucker, I think that the idea of a Trump-Haley ticket is not realistic, but as he said, that would be crazy, but crazy things can happen, so who knows?
Yeah, for sure. Stick around, we're rising for you right after this. There's more damning evidence that gain-of-function researchers were out to mislead accountability officers about what their real intentions were just before the pandemic. U.S. Right to Know reporter Emily Kopp is out with a brand new report detailing how these American scientists fooled the Pentagon about the research conducting to be conducted at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, including by concealing that they intended to conduct the high-risk gain-of-function coronavirus research under lax safety standards in that lab just a year before the COVID-19 pandemic. This is according to documents obtained by Emily Kopp, which make that abundantly clear. Scientist Elena Chan called these documents early drafts of the proposal that might have led to the pandemic. The U.S. government contractor and gain-of-function funder EcoHealth Alliance says COPS report is a nothing burger. More than that, they called it a falsehood. Quote, documents representing incomplete or early drafts of the proposal have been acquired via FOIA and published along with allegations regarding their intent. These allegations are false based on misunderstanding of edits and comments on the document and based on misleading out-of-context quotations and a lack of understanding of the process by which federal grants are awarded. Emily hit out at EcoHealth's characterization of her reporting, writing on Twitter this morning, EcoHealth Alliance's response to my story does not actually include any false statements, which is why they dodged my questions and didn't say anything until after the story was published. The statement argues that Diffuse wasn't funded, so it shouldn't matter that EcoHealth lied to DARPA and has been lying to the public for years. I disagree. So I want to be very specific about what came out of this new report from Emily Kopp, because this is very damning to me. So this is in this Project Diffuse um, proposal. So they're trying to get approval for this, for this proposal. And they say, so in a comment, uh, you know, this is the gain-of-function scientists kind of reviewing the proposal and like, how are we going to present it? And the comment is, if we win this contract, I do not propose that all of this work will necessarily be conducted by Ralph, that's Ralph Barrick, uh, who is at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. But I do want to stress the U.S. side of this proposal that, uh, so that DARPA are comfortable with our team. Once we get the funds, we can then allocate who does what exact work. And I believe that a lot of these essays can be done in Wuhan as well. So they are saying that once we get the grant approved, we can, do, we can move a lot of this research to Wuhan. But we don't want to tell the approval committee that that's our plan. We're going to stress to them that the UNC Chapel Hill guy is, is on top of this, and he's the lead researcher, and we're going to let them assume that what we mean is the research will be done here. That is pretty damning. So the implication there, just to close the circle, is that the reason that they're saying it's going to happen in Wuhan is because they can have lower safety standards, and they don't want to reveal that to folks who might have concerns about that reality? Or is that they not might- so explicit? They might disagree that this, I don't know, they might take the position that, no, it's just as fine, it's just as safe to do it in Wuhan, but they know that the approval committee will not like that it's being done predominantly in Wuhan. They know that could be a hang-up. So they, they, that, know, that means they know that people have legitimate concerns. I mean, obviously the concerns are legitimate. So they wanted to disguise that fact. They're not saying, they didn't put in the proposal, this is going to be significantly done in Wuhan. They know they have to cloak that fact. Yeah. And that is very concerning. Yeah. So COP writes that one of the more indicting aspects of the, the FOIA draft proposal is that it, quote, proposed engineering high-risk coronaviruses of the same species as SARS and SARS-CoV-2. Most worrying to some scientists, the proposal involves synthesizing spike proteins with furin cleavage sites, the same feature that supercharged SARS-CoV-2 into the most infectious pandemic pathogen in history. 
Uh, and moreover, uh, the, these concerns about whether or not the um, safety precautions are going to be sufficient if they are in Wuhan, all of those things combined do, at very least, I think, demand further investigation. If the, if the comeback here is, well, these are just draft proposals, it wasn't put into effect. I mean, one, you haven't addressed the surrounding context of what's being written about here, which is the desire for certain parties not to know about the long-term plan, which has something to do with, with what's right. going into the actual content of the draft proposal. And two, well, do you have a subsequent finalized proposal that demonstrates that some of the concerns that are being raised here about the safety of the research itself and then the safety precautions around the research have actually been addressed? They quite obviously weren't. Quite obviously not. Um, and that's that's the problem here. And is there going to be any accountability for the people who made these decisions? There's another um, area of the proposal I wanted to flag where um, I, I believe this is Ralph Barrick making this comment on the proposal that—and uh, this is a little bit technical, but in the U.S., these—talking uh, about the, the COVID strains and, and what— um, what their classification would would be for what they're willing, what they're able to do with them, um, and then notes that in China we might be growing these viruses under a BSL two. U.S. researchers would likely freak out. So that's an acknowledgement that they could. It'll be easier to do this in China, where the standards are more lax. Yeah. They know. In, in, they say right there, U.S. researchers will likely freak out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's also horrific. maybe they're right to freak out. <laughs> how, how how dark to understand that there are real safety implications here, but that maybe it's okay because it's the other side of the world, and yeah, to the extent that there sure. is a leak, it's not going to be our people affected. I mean, to yeah, well, also was, as a. As a pathologist, as, as someone who deals with infectious disease, if that is a part of the thinking, it is not just immoral, but deeply ignorant. How many diseases have we had so far that have had an origin in China? Because most people in the world <laughs> live in China, whether it's uh, avian flu, so many things originate on the other side of the world and manage to have global implications. The whole thing is just so dark and so despicable. And the fact that you have to be on the fringe of kind of journalism and media to even have a place to talk about these sorts of things still yes. to this day is deeply frustrating. Diseases cannot be used as a weapon because you, you cannot confine them, even if I mean I don't, don't want don't want anyone to be targeted by a weapon for disease, but it can blow back on your own population. It can take over the whole world. We still don't know the origins of some of the the, the Spanish flu. There are theories that actually I think there are theories that it began in like Kansas or somewhere mm. in the in the Midwest or the Great Plains in in the U.S. But we don't know for sure. It could have come from China. It could have come from anywhere. Probably didn't come from. Spain. They just called it that because the, <laughs> Spain was the only place willing to like fairly report on these deaths of disease occurring um, during World War One. But uh, but it's the danger to the whole world is so fundamental, which is mm -hmm. why there needs to be international cooperation and actual standards. Can't be like, oh, we got to do this in China. We'll be safe from it there. No, this is a COVID killed millions of people worldwide. Um, every every nation on earth was affected by this to some degree. And we can never let this happen again. And we should be so concerned about what our researchers were willing to do behind our backs and what they tried to get away with and what they're still getting away with. Yeah. And I, and I do think that the fact that very few people at all have taken up this charge, obviously, more so now than it used to be, but that so, so few people who are liberals have shown any interest in this is part of why it what has enabled the issue to yeah. be so marginalized. Come on in. The water's fine. Yeah, it's There's being no... characterized as a right issue it when it isn't. It doesn't need to isn't. be at all. 
Um, Jeffrey Sachs is one of the few left-leaning people who has really been leading the charge on this. He was, of course, appointed to uh, Lancet's uh, investigative uh, committee that was looking into lab leak origin, and I think probably surprised a lot of people in there institutionally when he saw a there there and has continued to push for this. And I'm so grateful for him and others who are left-leaning, who are willing to talk about this issue without the partisan lens on it. But truly, the failure of Democrats to be interested in holding their own hearings and holding their own investigations is part of what has allowed this miscarriage of justice to continue unplumbed now for three, almost four years out. Absolutely. No, thank you for calling attention to that. Very important stuff. Uh, that does it for us for today on Rising. Tomorrow promises to bring even more news that we'll be happy to share with you, including our wonderful takes, which we hope you appreciate <laughs> so much. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Take care.